Welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes, the rules have changed. There's a leak in this old building, and my soul has got to Welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio for Friday, September 7th, 2012. This week, episode 255 comes to you from Studio D in Central City, Pennsylvania. My name is Radio Joe Hughes. Joining us from the Studio C location is the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. Hey, Joe, how are you today? Good, we got you, Cliff. All right, at the controls is our engineer, Roxy V. Valbender. Hello, everyone. Joining us from Carnegie, Pennsylvania, will be our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Wow. Today's segments include the IAQ tri- radio trivia question, an interview with David Kahane, founder of Forensic Analytical and a past chair of the American Industrial Hygiene Association's IEQ committee. We're going to talk a lot of indoor air quality issues, a little bit about fires and a little bit about mold and water and all those fun topics. We'll go to our halftime, talk to Dr. Wow, and get back to the interview, finish with our roundup as always. Before we get started, let's thank our marquee sponsors. Net Claims Now, providing insurance billing services for the restoration industry. For fire, water, mold, and reconstruction billing, learn more about them at www.netclaimsnow.com. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information are available at ieconnections.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at www.johndon.com. Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at clean, C-L-E-A-N-F-A-X.com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. Okay, to listen live, you just follow the link on your show invitation that says go to the show or go to iaqradio.com and go to the show link is at the top of the page. We also have... Continuing education credits available for IICRC, ACAC, and ABIH. Just email me at joe.hughes, H-U-G-H-E-S, at iaqtraining.com. Last but not least, please visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. Let's turn it over to the Z-Man for this week's IAQ Radio Trivia Question. Thanks, Joe. Win a cool prize by outcompeting fellow IAQ radio listeners. 
and being the first person to correctly answer the IAQ radio trivia question each week. Submitting your answer is easy. Email it to cslotnick at cs.com, or if you're listening to the show live via your computer, text in your answer. Congratulations. To John Lapotier, MicroShield Environmental Services in Winter Springs, Florida, for being the first listener to provide the meaning of the word Australia. It comes from the Latin Australis, meaning south. The IEQ Radio Trivia Question for Friday, September 7, 2012, has been sponsored by Triska, the Tri-State Restorers and Specialty Cleaners Association, who have been serving the needs of and advocating for their members for over 30 years. Triska is your link to industry training, certification, standards, and events. Check out their new electronic membership category at their website, www.trsca.org. Now for this week's trivia question. Define the term forensic science. Back to you, Joe. Okay, Cliff. Today's guest is David Kahane. David is the founder of Forensic Analytical, a family of laboratory and consulting companies specializing in industrial hygiene, environmental health and safety, and the forensic sciences. He is, uh, has a BA in physiology and a master's in biological and environmental health sciences from the University of California, Berkeley. He has been practicing certified industrial hygienist as well for the past 18 years. He provides technical expertise and litigation support for asbestos, heavy metals, fungal, and other industrial hygiene-related exposure cases. He also performs and supports industrial hygiene and indoor air quality investigations for a variety of commercial, industrial, insurance, militaries, school, and residential clients. Mr. Kane is a frequent guest instructor at the University of California, Berkeley, and has served on both technical committees and the boards of the American Industrial Hygiene Association, the American Society for Testing and Materials, and other groups. He is an immediate past chair of the AIHA's Indoor Environmental Quality Committee, a topic we'll be discussing today. I think we have some intro music. Good morning. All right. We got you. Good morning. Thanks for joining us. We appreciate it. Hey, Dave, um, we, you know, we've talked a little bit, actually quite a bit before this show for a couple of reasons. I was at the last um, AIHA meeting and and met you there and talked a little bit about that committee. We'll get into that a little later. Before we do, I'd like to get a little background on you and Forensic Analytical. Before you started Forensic, did you work for some other group prior to that? Sure, Joe. I'll tell you a little bit about that. Um, hey, do I get to answer the trivia question? Because I, I kind of know what the answer is to forensic science. Well, I but... suspect that you do. <laughs> we always try to have both music and a trivia question. Uh, <laughs> but you're like you're like Dieter. He had, would answer it every week. Uh, yeah, well, I'll, I'll pass on that and use okay. the hour to, to talk about some other things. But uh, thanks for asking. Yeah, I started um, soon out of college. I was back in uh, the Washington, D.C. area and 
and um, thought I was going to actually go to work for a wildlife forensics lab back there. Unfortunately, it was 1982, and uh, there were no federal jobs. There were uh, the close sign was up, and the uh, wildlife laboratory was moving from uh, Washington to Ashland, Oregon. So I found myself uh, not in the forensic world, but uh, landing with, with an environmental company uh, doing primarily IH chemistry and asbestos analysis, which was really a hot topic, of course, back in uh, in 82. The federal government really took the lead on that. And uh, so asbestos in buildings was where I spent uh, a good part of, uh, of cutting my, my real work teeth uh, back in the early 80s um, and uh, starting in the lab and also in the field and, and probably were in a lot of the buildings that are uh, on the tour guides for most visitors to D.C., running around the Pentagon uh, in the middle of the night, uh, trying to find the air pumps uh, in fan rooms, and it gets a little confusing at three in the morning to figure out what ring of the Pentagon you're in, uh, and and where you left that that uh, air sampling pump inside what fan room. So it was a uh, it was a, a memory that's still pretty clear today. So I started back there, and and uh, ended up uh, beginning a business soon after uh, uh, working for a little while. My my lab director there started on his own and convinced me I should start a business too, and so. I got a little bit of training, and I got a little bit of business training uh, back there. When I came back to California, I started uh, an asbestos laboratory uh, early on, which was pretty successful. And from there, we've built uh, uh, six different companies and um, do work uh, nationally and internationally in the environmental health and safety world, including forensic science, as you mentioned, and uh, environmental science lab work, environmental consulting, safety, health, risk management, uh, over in uh, the Far East, so it's been a it's been quite a quite a journey, and uh, feeling a little old these days. <laughs> Cliff, did you want to ask anything? Yeah, sure. Is there any? I mean, you, you talked about you know doing work in other countries, and then you kind of said the Far East. Any particular problems that these countries have? Oh yeah, um, I mean. Uh, th- there's such a stark contrast uh, in in environmental health and safety uh, in the world of lawyers. I mean, I think we probably have the largest concentration of lawyers, you know, in the United States. If, if you're to compare it to the rest of the world, so right. the legal um, legal aspects associated with doing bad things in other countries, in in many countries, just isn't there. So regulations may not have the same uh, teeth and and actions by different entities may not have the same legal implications. That's that's just one real basic fact. The other thing is, you know, we, we protect our workers far better in the United States than, than, than in many other countries. And for foreign for for large scale uh, uh, international companies who get their get their products made in other countries, there are real issues about the supply chain, about how labor, what, what type of labor is being used, what type of environmental controls are being used, who's dying, what's in the product, and all that supply chain and risk management-related uh, work um, is taken seriously by many American uh, brands. And uh, so we find ourselves very busy doing that work in many uh, countries, uh, including China and, and, and all the Southeast Asian countries, and really everywhere. But those are the main countries that are producing so many things that come to the United States with uh, potential problems. So it, 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 we're far better at it. It's, it's, it's not even a horse race when it comes to uh, supply chain and risk management and employee protection, 
uh, in the United States as it's compared to, to many of the countries that we, we uh, inspect and audit, and many companies we audit and many countries we go to. Thanks. You've got a good, yep. strong technical background, and but you've also founded a, a very successful business. I mean, Forensic Analytical is well known in in the industrial hygiene and indoor air quality world. I'm just wondering if you could give our, our listeners a little advice or a tip, um, you know, from a business owner that's technically strong but also has done a good job, obviously, of you know running the business. What what would you what kind of advice would you give to people that are in that position? Always think twice before <laughs> about whether how big you want to get, but that's one thing. But <laughs> I think that uh, uh, in, in terms of advice, I, I think one of the most, maybe one of the more important things, uh, I know Clint Eastwood's been in the news lately uh, for other reasons, but I used to watch the Dirty Harry movies, and I always remember him saying, uh, the, the line as he stands over somebody, a man's got to know his limitations. And I think that that is a very key element to um, uh, both running a business and, and running a technical business and running a business, period. You, you have to do a couple of things. One, I, I believe you have to be very passionate about the work as a prerequisite. You've got to love what you're doing, and it's, you've got to make it contagious within your organization. You have to have a culture that uh, people believe in, that you're doing, you know, why, why you're here doing what you're doing doesn't matter. And I think if you can get those two basic messages, the passion and, uh, you know, what value and vision you bring into your organization, those are two very, very things, uh, important things to get, I think, clear. Then, once you got that, that's really kind of the 20% rule of your business. The rest of it, the, the 80%, of business is like every other business, I think. I think that it could be an accounting business, it could be a, a legal business, it could be selling uh, tennis shoes, but business is business, and you have to surround yourself with people that are either smarter than you uh, and can help you organize your business, or you need to be a student of, of principles of good standard business practices and use those best practices so that you don't run into cash flow problems, that you you have good books that you always are setting yourself up to be um, uh, a business that could uh, that's attractive either for buyers or or for or for recruiting staff. So uh, I think getting yourself uh, surrounded with good business help in one form or fashion, or attending international or national CEO groups or whatever to get yourself wrapped around the true eighty percent issue, which is how to run a business, is probably one of the more important things. Cliff, did you want to follow up on that? Actually, I got a couple of follow-up questions. With the number of companies that you have, um, are you the sole proprietor, or do you have partners or limited partners in the uh, the different entities? Uh, well, I originally started the businesses back in in um, in '86, uh, and subsequent to that, with the different businesses. Um, we have split them out into different S corporations. I'm still uh, majority shareholder or, or sole shareholder of some of them, and in other cases um, have brought in what I mentioned earlier, people with passion and drive and an idea and help sort of fund and support their efforts uh, in areas that they are far smarter than I am. And, and the cool thing about that really is that you get to uh, – uh, ride that passion wave of uh, whether it's risk management, supply chain issues. I, I was not an international guy three, four years ago, but I became one through, through 
through opportunities and supporting opportunities, and it's you know it, it, it's energizing to see other people with passion and, and growing it. So they're partners, uh, their goals to set, and ultimately I uh, take a reduced stake over time. That's kind of how I do it. It's collaborative and and uh, it's really engaging. Uh, it's kind of engaging the, the American dream for for uh, for those that want to want to chase it. At, at the level of ownership, and I like to give those opportunities out, and it uh, it builds a lot of loyalty and uh, a lot of stability of the process. So uh, at various stages within these businesses, I'm either sole owner or or um, uh, uh, working my way to minority owner. You know, it, it seems that during the time that you've had these businesses, there have certainly been some challenges in getting insurance, and I would suspect that you've probably gone through <laughs> those challenges, and I was just wondering if you just wanted to comment on it at all. Oh, insurance, that's an interesting topic, because um, uh, I think one of, the, one of the difficulties in putting an allied group of businesses together as one company and then spinning them out into different companies as standalones, ultimately, insurance companies understand some of them, but have no clue about some of them. The crime lab, which probably has the least amount of, of quote-unquote, liability, since they're simply, uh, I mean, they're working on criminal cases or giving expert witness testimony in court. Um, it's not a civil, you know, 90% of it is, is, is criminal and, and, and much smaller amount is civil. The insurance exposure is small, and yet the, the insurance industry doesn't understand it. So my premiums are ridiculously out of whack compared to, uh, the larger, much larger environmental companies that are uh, doing work. It, 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 I find that trying to educate the carriers and trying to work with their restrictions about what is consulting, what is uh, laboratory work, how they are differentiated, where the true risk is in doing business, uh, you get put in buckets and you can't get yourself out of. So it's a bit frustrating at times. Working with a good broker uh, is important and um, um and, and actually getting out and speaking to, to carriers, uh, both from a marketing perspective and an education perspective, seems to help, it seems to have helped some. But it's always difficult. Not to mention, Cliff, that that uh, some of the bigger projects, you know, always have uh, different insurance requirements. So we're, we're we're oftentimes buying extra excess liability for larger projects. Uh, so so insurance is something to contend with. Um, and getting a good broker and having a good carrier uh, that that the broker finds whatever is 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 critical because um, the perceived liability is still high in the environmental business. You know, they, not an easy you, thing. Not an easy thing. <laughs> I, you know, I I want to follow up a little on the um, asbestos issue with you because I I know you've been involved with that and actually started out with that. I didn't realize um, that's how you got started, but. I assume you're still doing a lot of asbestos work, and I'm curious, do you think, um, are you in agreement with banning all use of asbestos, or do you think uh, maybe we should still allow use in some areas? Aha, very, very, very interesting topic. Well, I'll start with the easy answer. Yes, asbestos is still uh, uh, a very integral part of our business. Um, we're doing as much asbestos work either in the laboratory, doing analytical work, or in the field doing doing uh, assessments or operations and management or demo oversight or uh, product liability uh, assessments for legal work. There's a lot of things going on with asbestos now, almost to the same level as it was um, before. And this notion that asbestos was going to be, quote-unquote, a dead business by the year 2000 was a 
pretty off the mark. I think asbestos will be here for another decade or two, uh, given all of the legal uh, uh, wranglings that are, are happening uh, with products that are not the products that were being focused on 30 years ago, viable, fluffy uh, materials and the manufacturers who made them, but we're dealing with uh, lots of other um, downstream products, you know, non-viable materials, organically bound materials that go into gaskets that might be in, in many other materials that that the, origi- the supplier, the manufacturer, simply put, put a piece of material in their machinery, and they are now major uh, 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 defendants in cases. They're the ones that are being called in. And I think the other aspect of uh, uh, that's interesting about asbestos is the laboratory analysis has become so advanced uh, through the years, uh, still lots of issues, but generally advanced. So we're looking at asbestos in a variety of matrices that we didn't see um, years ago uh, in soil, um, naturally occurring asbestos, um, settled dust, these organically bound materials, and we're able to find them. And, and, and so the minute asbestos is found, you can't argue the fact that it's probably the, the most regulated, um, most visible carcinogen on Earth. And if you can find it in everything, and if you can litigate everybody, including people who might just have a building where some product is in it and somebody works there, you could make the argument that banning asbestos makes financial sense um, for... for um, for everybody, uh, other than those making asbestos, uh, it's certainly being used extensively in in uh, in the third world uh, and 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 in developing countries and in 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 uh, uh, highly developed countries like Japan uh, and others. And I think you can read in the paper regularly about um, uh, asbestos ending up in 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 products that uh, that that cause uh, uh, concern for end users. I know China just had recall. Uh, hundreds and hundreds of cars uh, that they ship to Japan that that still use asbestos in brakes, and the Japanese don't want to deal with that. The Japanese themselves are dealing with asbestos in buildings, very similar to the type of uh, issues that we dealt with, but we dealt with them 30 years ago. So it 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 uh, it if you want to keep keep the lawyers happy and the experts happy and the labs happy, we can keep making it. But it might make financial sense to finally find a, a great alternative. I happen to think it's the greatest mineral. Uh, has the greatest mineral properties I've ever seen, but but uh, yeah, it, it it might be time to to ban it. That's interesting. For all the people, you know, I I I like your uh, the way you handle that because yeah, I, I think it's a great material, and we we have a lot of dangerous things that we work with all the time, and when we do it safely, it's not a problem. But I never thought of it from the perspective of you know the legal issues and the amount of money that's being spent dealing with it, it may be time to just go ahead and uh, pull the plug. But it's, <laughs> it, it, uh, i got to say, Joe, I mean, a lot of the, you know, a, a lot of our science, uh, you know, you can do the science and, 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 and do it well. There's always a social context to the, to the work that you do, and, 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 you know, the fact that we're finding it and everybody can find it, people take that information and handle it differently. And until people suggest that you can work with it safely and don't sue over it every second. Um, uh, we're going to continue to have this battle. Uh, they don't have that issue, as I mentioned, in other countries because the legal structure just is not the same. So if you take that out of the picture, uh, people get more mileage out of, the, out of products. But um, I can assure you, working with American companies, um, 
that have overseas operations, they look at asbestos as if it were, as if the product were uh, a product that that was here, even if they're even if they are uh, have an operation in another country. So the, the, the typical multinationals look at the American asbestos laws most of the time, and and treat it as if it was there because they you know they've got fiduciary responsibilities to their shareholders. That's another issue. You know, uh, you talk about asbestos still being um, viable. There are still many, many buildings, although less of them, that contain asbestos. And, and those companies that are publicly traded uh, have accounting requirements to list those buildings that are asbestos impacted or lead impacted or PCB impacted as a liability uh, to be calculated on the books because they have to report that uh, as a liability on their, uh, uh, on their balance sheet. So things just from a pure C-suite accounting perspective, people have to have to you know it's a liability. It's a it's a real world liability. Thanks to our association sponsors, the National Air Duct Cleaners Association, NADCA, is the leading authority for information on HVAC inspection, cleaning, and restoration. Visit NADCA at www.nadca.com. The Indoor Air Quality Association, IAQA, a nonprofit multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at www.iaqa.org. And thanks to our advertisers, Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at wolfsense.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Learn about them at legends-enviro.com. And, of course, our marquee sponsors. Net Claims Now, providing insurance billing services for the restoration industry. For fire, water, mold, and reconstruction billing, learn more about them at www.netclaimsnow.com Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information are available at ieconnections.com John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at www.johndon.com Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at cleancleanfax.com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. 
All right, we're back for the second half of today's interview. We've got David Kahane on with us with Forensic Analytical, the founder there. Uh, Dave, I want to, you know, we, we really want to talk a little bit about the American Industrial Hygiene Association and, and their Indoor Environmental Quality Committee. I don't know if a lot of people realize that um, that committee even exists and, and what they do. So can you tell us a little bit about the committee and uh, some of their highlights? Sure. Um, uh, thanks for that. I, um, the American Industrial Hygiene Association, I know that uh, many of the members of IAQA are also members of the American Industrial Hygiene Association. It is the, primarily the trade group uh, association for certified industrial hygienists. They hold meetings. Um, they have uh, many, many committees um, focused on different areas of industrial hygiene. Could be radi- it could be physical, chemical, or biological committees. TLV committees, you know, for threshold limit values, things like that, um, uh, that are that are volunteer committees. The Indoor Environmental Quality Committee is is simply one of them. It's a it's been historically um, a very active and, and and very productive committee. In fact, some of the some of the members of that committee are currently uh, within IAQA's um, executive. Um, uh, team. I'm not sure the terminology, but uh, Don Weeks, for instance, uh, has been a strong um, uh, supporter and producer within the IEQ committee at AIHA, and he's now, uh, fortunately for IAQA, a uh, uh, active member there. And there are others that have that have ha- had uh, dual uh, foot, you know, footprints in both organizations. IEQ has done a lot with um, uh, publications, quite quite a number of them on uh, mold-related issues, whether it's remediation or clearance. Um, they were uh, a major factor, along with a few other committees, uh, in the development of the Green Book, uh, as it's called, which is kind of the AIHA's, uh, which, which is sort of, a, a, if you will, a, a good reference uh, source document if you're going to embark on mold-related investigations and if you're going to be subjected to questions about that later on. They've also generated a field guide uh, for investigations, both for mold and bacteria, uh, even viruses. So it's a very active committee on those topics, um, long-standing topics related to asbestos and lead, emerging topics like, uh, or, or recently emerging topics like corrosive drywall uh, has been an issue uh, that uh, white papers have been drafted on. And it was uh, PCBs and caulking is now another uh, emerging subcommittee. So there's a lot of activity trying to deal with uh, current uh, questions and issues and state-of-the-art uh, approaches to uh, uh, hot topics in the industrial hygiene uh, and uh, in- environmental health and safety risk management world. Um, it's a committee that if you're a member of AIHA, you're embraced to join it. Um, and we meet uh, annually uh, at the conferences. We have regular phone calls, uh, semi-annual committee calls, and then active um, uh, executive team calls. Got to write a business plan. Got to do it. Uh, if you don't do it, you don't get a fancy little certificate at the end of the year that you were a good committee. So we take it seriously, and it was a real uh, honor to have uh, worked the last five years through that committee at the executive level and be a participant for uh, a dozen years or so there. There are also many other great committees uh that, that, uh, and, and entities at AIHA, including the Lab Accreditation Quality Program, uh, which, which is the one that helps accredit labs, 
which uh, is a good source, and I encourage those IAQA members to always remember that if you're using laboratories, you should use AIHA-accredited laboratories wherever you can because I've seen what goes into development and quality systems uh, and audits that, that go on uh, where certifications are given for those labs that uh, pass uh, the basics and, 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 and meet the, some of the ISO requirements. So there's a lot of good things happening in AIHA. Um, and uh, it's been a founding organization for me for my entire career. Cliff, did you have a follow-up, or you want me to head to the next one? No, no, you, you can, you can, you know, if you want to continue on that subject, <laughs> I, go I ahead. Would, I'm, I, my questions are more technical. I've got to follow up on the on the committee to some degree. I, you mentioned some emerging issues, and one that I know a lot of our listeners are interested in is the smoke and and soot related issues, Dave. Um, is AIHA doing anything with that, or is that just something that you do through, you know, you get involved in through your work uh, with forensic? We, um, we've given a couple of platform papers. Uh, at There's an annual conference, and, and uh, soot and smoke has certainly been a hot topic um, uh, in the last couple years uh, because of the wildfires. And uh, some of our technical people here, along with some well-known microscopist, uh, I think some of you may know Dan Baxter, but we've co-presented along with others on, on how to um, properly investigate and sample uh, wildfire damage. Um, and we've given those presentations at AIHA. We've been much more active on giving those presentations to insurance carriers um, and other uh, stakeholders uh, because the litigation surrounding it, as I mentioned earlier, um, is a... Um, is increasing, and uh, you know, we have wildfires regularly. The Colorado fires are going to generate and have already started generating public adjusting firms and plaintiffs' uh, uh, attorneys going out and, and stirring up the pot a little bit, and the, and the carriers are, are trying to find ways to show that the, the, the environmental damage, the soot and the smoke, um, um, differentiated between what normally occurs in a home versus what may have been uh, uh, occurring because of a wildfire. So there's a lot of technical thinking that needs to go into that. I know the uh, the uh, RIA um, is putting out a white paper or attempting to solicit comments uh, with respect to fire damage um, investigations and sampling. We've seen the first draft, and they've got it open for comments. We see some serious, frankly, very serious uh, technical issues associated with the first draft, and we'll We'll be getting our comments in before the deadline next week um, about what we think are appropriate ways to investigate wildfires and, and uh, distinctly break them out from structure fires, grease fires, biological fires, other types of chemical fires um, are different and have different issues associated with them than do wildfires. And I think until that's clear, uh, a white paper going out needs a, a bit, uh, quite a bit more work. So we look forward to to, to soliciting comments to the RIA. So you think and, that? Uh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I'm, no, no. I was just, I was uh, no. That that is pretty much it. I can I can get into tech. If Cliff wants to talk about that, and if the listeners uh, are interested, that's one thing. Uh, I just I think it's important that when you're putting out new standards and new approaches, that you look at the complete picture. And I. I um, I'm lucky in that we have um, have had an ongoing laboratory for 
for uh, 20 some odd, 28 years, 26 years, and, and we've had consulting almost that long, and, and each feeds off the other a little bit in terms of knowledge gain, and it helps to see the complete picture. You can't work one area in a vacuum, and you can't work consulting in a vacuum, and when you do the two in a vacuum, you end up with um, um, uh, problems in terms of collection and interpretation. So I feel lucky that we're in that position, and I'm hoping the RIA will uh, uh, receive our comments well. Hey, one other thing, Joe, I just wanted to mention. Uh, you mentioned AIHA. I think for the listeners at IAQA, um, I have to tell you that one of the most significant things about the committee that I felt was important last year was to develop a closer uh, relationship with um, IAQA so that AIHA and IAQA actually work more uh, more together on topics of training and on topics of education and on common interests because we want to we both want to elevate uh, uh, the approaches to indoor air quality and so fortunately this year both uh, the executive directors of, of those two organizations just last couple of weeks signed a memorandum of understanding to do just that to work together much more closely than 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 work um, uh, against each other or work as uh, com- competitors if you will so that's an exciting change, and I, I think it'll elevate um, uh, opportunities in both organizations. Well, if I can give one quick example and, and put a little plug in for us here, Dave. Uh, you know, you and I talked at that meeting, and we decided to put together, uh, we do an indoor environmentalist course for, there's two levels, awareness and intermediate, and you were kind enough to offer your facility out in Hayward, and the last week of September we'll be doing the uh, five days, two-day awareness, three-day intermediate at uh, your facilities in uh, in Hayward, California. You betcha. Happy to have you, and happy to uh, participate and learn and, and contribute where we can. Well, it's it, great it's, that we'll be able we're to. Excited, we're excited to see you, yeah, and, and uh, we got better weather than you do. I'm excited. Well, right now it's not so bad, um, but I'm, I'm happy about <laughs> being able to use you um, and, and some of your other, you know, uh, technical and, and field experts in helping people better get a better grasp for how to uh, evaluate indoor environments. So uh, I think it's great. Now, I know we don't want to pass up the smoke issue because I know that's a big one for Cliff. And, but let me get one quick uh, kind of clarification from you, Dave. So are you saying that how we evaluate fire-related damage should change or maybe just the analysis should change based on the whether it's a, a structure fire or a wildfire? Well, I think they're different in that um, with respect to a wildfire, you're going to have sort of an immediate... Um, if, if something were impacted, you would have a what, what might be called you know, uh, soot litter on a surface um, and you would want to analyze that distinctly differently than you would the entire surface. I mean, I can get technical, but but um, some of the suggestions and ways for sample collection aren't quite right. Some of the interpretation about about or or discounting of the use of optical microscopy out of hand, which seems to be indicated in the RIA document, is just wrong. Optical microscopy probably is. Uh, the most logical and useful first step if done if sampled correctly. We just don't agree with some of the original authoring of, of, of this paper and see some just technical flaws in, uh, in the understanding of the analysis 
and we also have done thousands of, of um, analyses. I think the other problem that we see is what is the end goal? Is the end goal to determine, um, uh, to trigger there is a difficulty in that what is damage? Is damage visible? Is damage microscopical? Uh, what's the extent of cleaning and what is clean? Not much different than we saw with the years of asbestos and settled dust. A little bit different because the analyte's different and the methods are different. But many people claimed um, contamination, quote-unquote, um, uh, of things from TV sets to electronics to couches to clothes uh, back in the day when earthquakes would happen and popcorn ceilings would shake a little bit, and then people would claim that there's asbestos um, in their dust, which is perfectly expected, because uh, it happens every day in every location and where asbestos may be, may be present, and even in places where it's not typically part of the structure. The same thing could be said for certain smoke particles that, that come from either wildfires, fireplaces, candles, um, and uh, barbecue pits. I mean, those are all sources of, quote-unquote, environmental uh, uh, smoke uh, and char that, that could happen that are completely unrelated to a wildfire. And then you throw in the notion of a, a grease fire or an internal structure fire caused by an entirely different set of chemicals or, or, or igniters. Uh, that's a whole different way to look at things. So you've got to be careful about what, what is smoke damage and fire damage uh, both from its origin, its methods of sampling, <clears throat> and it, the interpretation. And I think that it's somewhat simplified in this document, or at least certain things are reduced out of hand and other things are, are glossed over, and it needs a bit of work. I, for one, think the more guidance documents on a topic like this are, are valuable because there's so much room to make sweeping determinations about damage from sampling if you're not careful. And, and that happens all the time. We see it with mold, we've seen it with asbestos, and we'll see it with smoke damage. Finding a particle or two here, some people might suggest cleaning everything in the house. Some people, you know, the, by the time you're done, you might as well just burn the rest of the house down because of the cost uh, at times. You wonder uh, how inflated it gets. And, and uh, the carriers want clarity. You know, the insurance companies want to be able to pay customers, but they need a a, a somewhat of a standard analysis to help them understand what is a priority claim versus a, 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 a species claim. So there's a need for it. I just think that some of the some of the work, much of the work, still needs to be done on this white paper, and ultimately some sort of guidance document, call a RIA or ASTM or what have you, needs to happen. Cliff, I know you have follow-ups on this one. Yeah, no, I've, I've got a couple of follow-ups. Um, I'm just wondering, uh, I, I don't have a lot of experience with wildfires. Uh, it, it, it's somewhat limited. Um, I, I'm just wondering, you know, with all the inspections that you've made and, and sampling that you've done, um, I, I'm, I'm struggling with why the insurance carriers are having trouble um, with with clarity, I mean, it's either damn. I mean, either there's residue there, there's not, and uh, I, I guess it's a matter of whether the residue on found on the outside of the house would be similar in characteristics to residue that was found on the inside. It would seem that uh, you know that there should, you know, particularly on the forensic side, there should be hints to this. Well, I, it's a good question. I think some of it has to do with what is your threshold for damage. Is your if you, I mean, and some of the arguments are there is no threshold 
doing a, a numerical or, or estimates or quali- qualitative analysis um, may be interesting, but damages in the uh, in the eyes of the beholder. And some of the problems are, hey, something looks like it might be might ha- might have darkened a little bit. That could be related to wildfire. It could be other black particles. I mean, there, there, some people want to dismiss sampling out of hand. Some people want to use a threshold of uh, a one percent of, of of some visual area estimation. Others want to use ten percent of a visual esti- area estimation for opaques, and then if it hits that level, to drill down a little bit more with scanning electron microscopy uh, to characterize the carbonaceous particles. I mean, there's a process. We think we've got a pretty good process, and we think we've been able to process. Thousands and thousands of investigations related to to this um, over the last three years. In fact, I got to tell you, I don't know what we we missed the entire recession because we were busy running around supporting smoke damage uh, investigations and and um, analytical support. So we've gotten pretty good at it to the point where some of our folks can use optical microscopy to tell you what room the sample came from. Forget about whether there's soot or smoke there, uh, you know, soot or char there. Uh, you know, what, whether it's a bathroom, whether it's a kitchen, whether it's a living room, just by the combination of particles. And the other point about a cliff is you're always going to find carbonaceous particles in things. It's a lot like finding mold in things. It's everywhere, right? So what is the additional contribution? What is the distinctive cut point at which you say, if you can't visibly see damage, but somebody's claiming damage based on a, the presence of an opaque, how do you tell somebody that's there, that's normal. Uh, what's abnormal is having it cover 10% of a slide. And um, then that's wor- worthy of writing a check. I mean, so, so the question is, is, in part, is what is the cut point for, for damage when it may not be visible? Recognizing that a good informed vis- uh, visual inspection trumps all the sampling. You know, the, the general question of whether to sample or not is, you know, do your visual inspections determine why you want to sample and for what purpose? And when there's arguments over what the cut point is, sampling just breeds some confusion. Or analysis, the analysis results will breed some confusion because different people look at it differently. And then when people sample differently, that adds another layer of, of um, uh, variability uh, to, to what, the, what the analytical data actually means. And now you have people speaking different dialects about what is, you know, what is a, a basically good analytical and sampling technique. And then lastly, what it all means with respect to damage. So there's work to be done. It's pretty clear in their little isolated silos, but the connections aren't always there. What about, uh, I'm sorry, what about the interstitial spaces? It seems to me that that's really where the biggest concern or cost would be. I mean, you know, certainly you can find it on the outside of the house and certainly you can kind of find it on the inside of the house. It's, you know, what about the attic and what about these interstitial spaces? Because it seems that if you find it there, that's really where the big cost is. Well, I think that your your point's well taken. I think that in, in typical inspections, attic spaces, because they communicate um uh, fairly effectively with the outdoor environment are good locations to be evaluating accumulated uh, or freshly laid um, uh, char or soot uh, as an investigative tool for a wildfire. Interstitial interstitial spaces, in my opinion, are great places to look for structure fires um, because oftentimes 
that's where they start, right? And and then they tra- and then and then they're going to move through uh, wall systems uh, uh, before they ever necessarily represent themselves visibly to the interior environment in, in cases. So interstitial work, I think, is more valuable uh, in um, structure fires, and attic investigations are valuable in wildfires, uh, and included in an in, investigation. But uh, you don't always get depending on how far away. Imagine being 100 miles away and looking in an interstitial space for an opaque material and saying, ah, it's related to that wildfire from three months ago. What about the wildfire from three years ago or nine years ago or last week uh, because you burned some um, um, brush in the backyard? I mean, you know, it's, 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 uh, drawing conclusions like that and making sweeping comments like that are dangerous. Uh, so investigating an interstitial space for a specific reason Knowing what knowing what your parameters are going to be, anticipating the the range of results ahead of time. I always say to people, uh, you know, you can't be a consultant and then flip a coin and say and and call it heads or tails when it lands. You got to call it in the air. So you better have your plan ahead of time and be able to deal with the analytical data. Many times we cram analytical data into what our preconceived notions might be and write lousy reports. You better have a system, a hypothesis, a way to evaluate it, a, 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 an analytical tool that will lean you to one conclusion or another, and some of those pieces are still missing and being argued over in, in situations where settled dust or small particle accumulations uh, happen and where there is no PEL or TLV or simple occupational exposure number that says, oops, good, oops, bad. And we're still working on that with, with uh, the fire damage world. Uh, all that being said, all that being said, your nose and your eyes are still, you know, key to your fire investigation. If you can smell it and if you can see it, you know, you don't need to sample it. Right. Let me ask this, Dave. Do you have some kind of, like, investigative guidance that you follow or that you give your clients to follow when they are trying to do these types of investigations? Yes, absolutely. I mean, we we believe that uh, you better have some standard approaches in everything that you do. So we try to standardize both our investigation for whatever analyte it is and try and, and encapsulate and standardize what the range of conclusions might be from analytical work and what that might suggest. So with mold, we already have we already have uh, things that we have put together that have withstood, uh, you know, that have compil- compilated mainstream thinking and 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 and, and stated, reasonably state of the art approaches uh, and, and sometimes even past that, like using PCR in certain situations for mold investigations. But we write them down. We have them as training tools. We have them as procedures. And the analytical support and the range of results associated with that are already factored in. If we get this number uh, or this range, uh, we tie it back to a source document like um, ACGIH or, 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 or uh, you know, we look at the uh, AIHA documents, IAQ documents, take your pick, use those source documents, tie them back in for interpreta- interpretational support, and then be able to report the analytical data in the context in which the sampling was taken. And all that's worked out already pretty well for us with mold, so we can be able to stay consistent both in our investigation, in our findings, and lastly, in the way that we discuss it when we're being asked in court to discuss it and to benchmark other people's reports. 
Uh, do they contain enough photos? Do they have enough moisture meter readings? Do they uh, have the appropriate um, um, uh, analytical data to support their conclusions? Whether it's mold, whether it's fire, uh, uh, fire issues, asbestos, whatever, it's an entire scientific method being brought to bear um, with, with each type of analyte. And a lot of that is grounded, to be candid, in an education in forensic science. Because in forensic science, you are talking to the public, you know, in the public view is what, you know, we're talking about here, and discussing the science and be able to be consistent and objective uh, uh, to do it. And there's a, there's a nature of proof uh, paradigm that you've got to have and got to learn about. And if you can translate that into the environmental sciences, um, you're on pretty solid ground. That's I really appreciate the way you explain that. And uh, what what I'd like to do, we're running out of time. I want to bring our technical director on and and get a couple comments from him and just kind of wrap things up. Are you in a hurry to get out of here, Dave? No, man, I'm I'm on the west coast. I'm three hours ahead of you. All right, great. All right, let's uh, let's go to our roundup. We'll be right back. Move him on, hit him up, hit him up. Move him on, move him on, hit him up, raw high. Cut him out, ride him in, ride him in, let him out, cut him out, ride him in, raw. technical director on first we've got to have a little music for him <laughs> all right dr dietrich wild Dieter, do we have you on the line yeah there is ludwig von beethoven again i have to play <laughs> that cd again boy do i have comments okay and um uh, uh, some of them, I, uh, I have a bad taste in my mouth. When we talked about business and business setup and so on, I get back to that. Uh, but on the other hand, I have a, yeah, who the hell is spending any money, any effort to look at thermal decomposition products of a damn wildfire? <laughs> and nothing you can do about it, but I have a solution. We have elected people in Washington, Democrats and Republicans, <laughs> and the one way to take care of that is we just outlaw wildfires, tsunamis, <laughs> earthquakes, tornadoes, hurricanes. We just outlaw them, and then we don't have to worry about them anymore. <laughs> it's very simple. It is very simple. <laughs> the other what. thing is with asbestos and brakes, I still maintain 100%, and I know, of course I know asbestos, is uh, toxic, and of course I know that uh, the dose makes <laughs> the difference here between a poison and a remedy, but uh, uh, asbestos brakes are still being used on uh, jet fighter uh, planes and other ones, and I have absolutely no problem uh, with that whatsoever. On the business, I have a business, I'm incorporated, I'm a one-man empire, <laughs> I'm incorporated, and uh, my lawyer friends told me to do that. I have zero insurance. If somebody wants to sue me, go ahead right away. I have an old computer. I'm looking at it right now. 
probably worth two, three, four hundred dollars, something like that. I guess old ones are uh, uh, even cheaper. And um, I run my business honestly. I don't need insurance. Yeah, I know I have to have insurance when I drive my car. I can hit somebody, somebody else can hit me. When I do my business, I do it the way I was taught for many, many years by my grandmother, my parents, and my other peers. And I said, either you don't cheat, and you don't uh, do it under the table, and you do it. And everybody who knows me, I've never gotten a suit. They can, yeah, they can sue me for ten million dollars. They're not going to get a penny. Then you have to sue uh, Bill Gates. There you have a chance. Yeah, Joe knows me. A lot of people know me. They know that I only take. Oh, I, I take any job, any job that I am being offered, and I look at it and I do it to the best of my knowledge. And I don't cheat. I don't. Said Dieter, could you just move the decimal place a little bit over there and you paid another thousand bucks? I don't, I don't need it and I don't do it. So, uh, uh, what else do we have over here? I have the business uh, stuff. I have the tsunamis, the earthquakes, the tornadoes, and the hurricanes. <laughs> Sounds uh, like you've covered uh, every every plague known to man here. Uh, yeah, well, <laughs> but I mean, I think Dave gave us some very how should I say, common sense advice on how to approach and do and conduct your business. And I think that is very nice. Obviously, Dave knows I didn't attack him on anything he said. On the contrary. On the contrary. All solid information, dear. Uh, but dear. Um, I think we got to look at it that way. And uh, we can A, have fun, B, make a little bit of money, and be proud of it and go to happy hour and have a beer with the customer. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's get to uh, Cliff. Cliff, any uh, last questions for... Yeah, I just I just wondered, Dave, if you could look in the crystal ball and, and tell us something uh, we need to be concerned about, uh, you know, that, that's taken for granted in the present, but it's going to pose a problem in the future. Whoa. Uh, from an indoor air quality perspective, I I, I think that um, it, it's funny. I, I think that you know the whole green building, um, greening buildings will continue to you know it's it's a little sluggish because the economy has has yet to turn around. But I think when we start seeing more construction, you're going to see a combination of indoor air quality issues come into play. There may be some vapor intrusion issues to try and evaluate. There's going to be, you know, the need to um, look at international uh, code council requirements for indoor air sampling, for commissioning buildings. Uh, you know, we may. I, I tend to believe that we're going to start. I would like to believe that just as we did with asbestos management plans and and, and planners and um, training them up uh, back in the day to deal with asbestos issues, we might start to see more about facility managers getting a um, some sort of a. Uh, indoor air quality management planner uh, certificate to understand indoor air quality and ventilation and heating at some level, and I think it'll open up an opportunity for IAQ members and others to 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 also get certified or also reach out to those facilities in a more meaningful way and be there when when uh, crap hits the fan uh, to support facility managers and buildings. It's got to remember it's been a you know we've been on a decline for for two to three years with construction, but that's that's changing quickly. So I think that 
that uh, those issues, I think Legionella continues to be um, an extremely visible topic. Uh, you know, newspaper articles in Canada and Chicago. When people die, people look at those things. And Legionella is a complicated you know, bacteria to deal with. Um, uh, you've got issues of operation. You've got issues of, of, of how, to, how to kill it effectively and keep it gone, of usage. You've got those issues in the hospitality market and in the hospital market where they're significant. And uh, those are going to be real challenges for the IEQ industry uh, to get up to speed on that, to try and navigate risk communication. If you start dealing with bigger clients, you know, you're dealing with brand valuation. It's not just indoor air quality. And understanding the whole context in which you, what role you play in that and how you communicate risk being better at communicating risk in the future has big stakes for, for the larger scale. The residential environment will be its environment, but in the commercial and the big business world, how you communicate risk effectively will dictate how successful you are uh, as an indoor air quality professional, in my opinion, and staying up on the potential risks um, and the emerging risks and being able to digest them and communicate them, I think, are, are going to be the biggest challenges for uh, success and failure for our 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 industry and our, our our folks. I also think supply chain and 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 uh, product stewardship questions. While it's not indoor air quality per se, some of the IEQ professionals who understand how to communicate risk and evaluate exposures and that sort of thing may find that uh, looking at products and looking at where they come from and managing it and being a product stewardship support person to industry. Uh, may be the transformation that may take place for IEQ over the next decade or so, and that's where the next, uh, you know, area of business development will likely be for professionals in in our market. That's that's kind of what I I see. Infection I control, of course, huge topic. Yeah, I'm uh, glad Cliff asked that question. Those are the big ones. Yeah, those he, are the big ones. You know, he he that also helped make sure we cover these last couple of items I wanted to make sure we covered, but I also want to mention that we did a great show on risk communication. Uh, Dr. Howard, I think it was Howard Sandman, uh, came on oh, yeah. and did a great job for us. Uh, if listeners get a chance, go back and check that out because um, we and he made it specific to indoor environmental quality risk communication as well. So it was a, it was a very nice program and actually that's one of the programs I have a I think we have the transcript now, or we're working on the transcript for that one because I think that's an important, important uh, program. And by the way, the transcript program's coming along real well there, uh, listeners. We've probably got about six or eight ready to go, and we'll probably have about 15 or 20 in the next couple of weeks. We'll send out a notice on that. Anyway, Dave, before we go, uh, anything we missed that you'd like to add? I know we're running over. I don't want to, I have another question or two, but uh, it's probably time to wrap it up. Well, my only thing is to thank you, uh, both Joe and Cliff, for the opportunity to, to speak on the program. I, I um, feel kind of special to be asked, and I think in the spirit of, of, of uh, coordinating IAQ and AIHA efforts to, to, to build a, a better, more informed workforce, uh, it's a real privilege to get a chance to speak with you. I could talk all day, but we don't have it. So. Um, I'll talk to you in a couple of weeks when I see you. Yeah, and I, I will talk before that, and uh, hopefully again on the show sometime we'll get you back and uh, do a little follow-up and see how things go. Uh, over the happy, next. happy to do it. Happy to do it. it. Well, hey, this is uh, Radio Joe Hughes, and uh, I want to first thank my, my guest today, David Kahane, out of Forensic Analytical. 
thanks for uh, working with me this week, getting ready, and then also uh, meeting us early in the morning. Well, not too early, I guess, but it's early enough on the West Coast. Thanks for joining us. And uh, second, I want to thank the Z-Man. Cliff, we're back. We were Good off. to be back, Joe. It's I, good. I got a little rusty, Cliff. I started out a little rough there. But uh, thanks for joining us, Cliff. Of course, I want to thank our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Weil, for his comments. Uh, always appreciate Dieter joining us. Most importantly, we want to thank our growing group of loyal listeners. Come back and join us next Friday for the next episode of IAQ Radio. Thank you.